It's a program of Jewish information, inspiration, motivation, and transformation. Here on the Gabrielle Sanders Show. From Jerusalem coming to you on WNEW 102.7 FM, HD3, on the TalkLine Network.com, and on podcasts too numerous to count, this is Gabrielle Sanders, serving up Jewish content for thought, word, and deed. In today's program, we'll learn about a little-known but vital program in Jerusalem for cultivating Jewish leadership on secular campuses in North America. Following that, from the archives of The Gabriel Sanders Show, the ever-effervescent Rabbi Jonathan Rietti explores the science of happiness. And I'll have a closing segment today to share with you 10 critical facts that you should know and share about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's the fastest-moving Jewish program legally allowable, so let's get underway on this edition of The Gabriel Sanders Show. This is David Eskenazi from the Aliyah Network. If you're thinking Aliyah, I invite you to join our dynamic and supportive WhatsApp group. Contact Gabriel for details. Send an email to gabrielradio at gmail.com. So I'd like to introduce you to someone here on the Gabriel Sanders Show today. Natanya Greif is the director of a unique leadership program in Israel for gap year students. That's high school students that go to Israel for a year prior to going on to college or university or someplace else. These are students that uh, often plan to attend secular colleges in North America. And while they're at their respective yeshivas and seminaries in Israel, they meet monthly as something called Nitzavim Fellows. Why? To gain vital leadership and advocacy skills, which will make them persons of influence among Jewish students on their campuses in the coming year. So, Natanya, welcome to the Gabriel Sanders Show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I gave a short intro of what you do. Can you expand on the aims and strategies of Nitzavim? Definitely. So the Nitzavim Fellowship is targeted for gap year students, like you said, who are studying in Israel for the year before going off to secular college in the States or elsewhere abroad. And the Nitzavim Fellowship aims to engage, empower, and educate these gap year students in order to be leaders on their college campuses, leaders for the Jewish people, and leaders for the state of Israel. That's a tall order. So what actually draws them to Nitzavim? And how many students, by the way, are you working with this year? So the students actually get three college credits from Hebrew University, and that does draw a lot of our students to participate while they're here in their gap year, along with just giving the opportunity to learn the skills and the tools to fight and combat anti-Semitism once they're on campus. And this year, we have a strong cohort of 75 fellows. And how many schools, let's see, how many seminaries and yeshivas are represented among that group of 75? We have about 16 different seminaries and yeshivas represented, and they're going off to 30 different universities. Wow. I understand that the students are responsible to create some kind of leadership project while they're here, that, and then that's implemented on campus when they get back to where they're going. What would that look like? Yes, so the project is actually a large portion of the fellowship, and students are broken up into groups, and each group has to come up with a social startup project to think and identify a key issue that Jews on their university are facing right now and a solution, something that they can do to help solve it. So for example, one of the winning projects from last year's cohort is called the B Mitzvah Project, and the aim was to connect religious Jews with non-observant Jews on college campuses and to connect you know, this, the students who had the opportunity to go to Israel for the year and learn and be connected to their Judaism with students who didn't not. So often these students who are less observant did not have the opportunity to have a bar bat mitzvah. So together they were paired up with a more observant student and they would meet up 
three or four times just learning learning about Judaism in general, not necessarily about the Parsha. And then at the end of the year, they had a big party, which we invited Chabad and Hillel and JLIC and all these Jewish organizations to come and celebrate their bar and bat mitzvahs and to just connect them to the opportunities that exist on campus for Jewish life. Sounds like an amazing project. Because it's current, I have to mention it, the Gaza war, it's been a catalyst for, I'd say, distressing disruption at campuses all across the world, but particularly at some of the Ivy League schools. Have you had any feedback from Nitzavim students who've been navigating all this? Yes. So actually, the current situation in Israel is adding more significance and more importance to our Nitzavim Fellowship now than ever. And many of our students are going to these universities, which are facing horrible rises in anti-Semitism. We have a bunch of students at Columbia, one at Yale, one going to Princeton. And but really, wherever you are on campus, Jews are facing an uproar in, in anti-Semitism. I know that students now are even more passionate to learn the tools and the skills, how to fight and combat anti-Semitism, to know the challenges that they're going to face when they get to campus, and to be armed with the the information, the knowledge, and the facts to do so successfully. Facts, very important, because it seems that the fiction is prevailing on so many of these places. There are some parents that are listening, grandparents now, that have students that are in high school, and they're thinking, you know, gap year already, making their plans. What's the time requirement to come to Nitzavim? It's based in Jerusalem, right? Yeah, so we're partnered with the Hebrew University. So about once a month, we have class on Fridays. We do not want our students to have to miss any yeshiva or seminary time. So about once a month, we have class on Fridays from about 9.30 to 12.30 to come and to learn with our professor and to gain the skills that they're going to need for their college career and for the rest of their lives. What would one of those Friday morning sessions look like as far as content and format? So we always start off with breakfast because, you know, we need <laughs> the some... Catalyst of, yeah, the catalyst of Judaism, food. <laughs> yeah, we'll always have coffee and muffins and bagels. And then we'll start off with our professor, Akiva Gersh. We'll start off the first half of the class just teaching knowledge-based facts and history of Israel and Israel advocacy and anti-Semitism. And then usually the second half of the class, we bring in an impressive guest speaker. So actually this past Friday, we brought in Michael Eisenberg, who is the co-founder of Aleph, um, a successful venture capital firm in Israel, who's raised over $800 million for Israeli startups. That's incredible. So it sounds like when the students are here, it's not just a download of information that they get. There's also some very strategic people connections that could even be helpful to them in their future as well. Definitely. We want to introduce them to leaders of Israel and the Jewish people and give them opportunities to create connections and ask them questions and kind of just guide them through their college years. And historically, how long has Nitzavim been around and roughly how many students have gone through the program? So this is the third year of the Nitzavim Fellowship. We have 75 fellows this year. Last year they had 70 and the year before, I believe, about 60. So it's growing. Yes, thank God. It's growing successfully. Baruch Hashem. Well, we give you a bracha that it will continue to do so and that any student considering gap year will do it here. Now, I have a good question. Let me back myself up. Do you have students that come to Nitzavim on the once a month Friday that you do this that are outside of Yerushalayim? Definitely. So we actually have a strong cohort of Bar Ilan participants who are part of the Bar Ilan XP. We have some students in Leva Torah, in Tiferet, in Rabbi Shemesh, Mechon Mayan, in Givat Washington, Mevasaret. And aside from that, majority of the seminaries and yeshivas are in Yerushalayim. Excellent. So we wish you tremendous hatzlacha on all that you're doing, and uh, maybe we can get an update sometime. Amen, amen. Looking forward to it. Call to. And just to add a quick tag to that, If you're interested in more information for yourself or some student that you think would be interested, you can contact Natanya at director at nitzavim.org. That's N-I-T-Z-A-V-I-M dot O-R-G.
This is Rabbi Pesach Krohn, and you're tuned to the Gavriel Sanders Show. The Torah world has a plethora of outstanding teachers. Among them is one whom I regard as a prince of practical education for Jewish living and learning. I'm speaking of British-born, world-traveled Rabbi Jonathan Rieti, a senior lecturer for Gateway Seminars. We're honored to host him today on The Gabriel Sanders Show. Rabbi Rieti, over to you. This presentation is entitled, The Science of Happiness. I call it a science because the claim is that happiness is not an emotion. The emotion we call happiness is the result of a very specific formula, almost scientific, that if we take happiness, put it under the microscope, and look at its ingredients, we will discover that there's a very specific formula that has to unfold in order for me to feel the emotion I would call happiness. So this presentation essentially wants to answer question number one, who is responsible for my happiness? Number two, Can happiness actually be defined? Is it really an emotion? Or is it a science that when I understand the formula, I am choosing happiness and I therefore am responsible for it? And then number three, and I think this is very important, is after we've defined happiness, we need to discover, explore, figure out what are the typical sabotages that hurt my ability to sense and feel happiness on a more consistent basis. So let's look at this. Number one, who is responsible for my happiness? Well, figure out the following. You know, when I graduate, I'll be so happy. You know, when I go on my first date, I'll be so happy. You know, when I get out of this date, I'll be so happy. You know, when I get my first job, I'll be so happy. You know, when I get out of this job, I'll be so happy. You know, when I have kids, I'll be so happy. When I kids out of the house, I'll be so happy. You know, when I get married, I'll be so When I get divorced, I'll be so happy. One second, one second. If my happiness hangs on my spouse, has to be more loving, affectionate, understanding, empathic. If my spouse is the one who needs to be different and then I'll be happy, who have I given the definition of controlling my happiness to? If it's my boss who has to come through on the loan or a raise in salary, who am I defining as controlling my happiness in my career? If it's my children have to be more respectful and then I'll be happy, who have I set up as controlling my happiness in the parenting relationship? So number one, if I make other people or circumstances responsible for my happiness, then guess who controls my happiness? Not me, someone else. Why would I do that? Why would I blame others for my unhappiness? And the sad answer is, well, who has to change if it's your fault? I don't have to change. You're the one who's ruining my life. I give you the best years of my life. And when I blame you, complain, not you personally, I'm sorry, ma'am. When I complain about you, when I accuse you, when I deny it's my fault and give excuses why it's your fault for me being unhappy in my life, I don't have to change. Number one, happiness is my responsibility. It's my choice for what? To notice what's already good in my life, in my wife, in my husband, in my children in my health, in my finances. If I'm not keeping inventory of what's already good in my life, I will be constantly noticing what's not yet good in my life and claiming when that changes, then I'll be happy. In the words of King Solomon, Adam Yeshleimana, a person has a hundred. Reitzema time, he wants two hundred. Here's the problem. Guess what happens when he gets close to two hundred? Will he be happy or he'll want four hundred, eight hundred? 1,600, I hear 1,800 in the corner there. You're all going to want more. Why? Why? 
Because I'm, if I fall into the trap of believing that what has to make me happy is the difference between what is in my life now and what needs to be in my life, and then I'll be happy when I know shas, when I graduate, when I retire, when I get the kids out of the house, when I have children, when I get married, when I get divorced. It's always identifying what's not yet in my life. Comes along King Solomon, tells me a very simple formula. If I want to enjoy the 200, what's the secret? I have a hundred, but am I keeping inventory? If I'm not counting the first hundred, where's the logic that dictates that when I get 200, then I'll be happy? Wait a minute, I'm not counting the first hundred. If I'm counting what I don't have, well, what I don't have, there'll be no limit to. There'll always be more and more of what I don't have. Happiness starts with Eizehu Asher, who's the wealthy person, the one who enjoys his portion. And that's not mediocrity. That is planning and training. That if I'm counting the first hundred, then I'll count the two hundred as well. But if I'm not counting what I've already been blessed with in my health, in my wealth, in my family, if I'm not counting what's already good about me, then when I'm blessed with more in finances, I won't count that either. Because guess what? There's still more than that too. When my wife, my spouse changes, I won't count that either because there's still improvement on that. The question isn't, how much do I not yet have that will make me happy? The question is, how much have I already got that I'm counting that's preparing me and helping me train so that when I'm blessed with more, I'll count that too. One of the sabotages of happiness is that we make it a moving target. That when I, then I. When I have this, then I'll be happy. But the danger in that is that the when I always changes. PhD, a second PhD, graduating, then going on to another degree. Whether it's intellectual improvement or physical improvement. When I lose five pounds, then I'll be happy. You know, and there's another five pounds I would like to lose. When I'm this shape, when I finish this diet, I make it a moving target. The media also plays major into brainwashing me into believing that what I haven't yet got is what's going to make me happy. Think about it this way. What is the assumption in every single advertisement? You can't possibly be happy. You can't possibly be fulfilled in your life until you're driving this, wearing this style, eating this, drinking this, smoking this product, living this lifestyle, vacating this island. Only when I've got that, then I'll be happy. The assumption is I can't possibly be happy with what's already in my life. And God wants me to know that gratitude is happiness. Gratitude, recognizing what's already in my life, is happiness. It's not more complex than that. And what's the proof of that? The word in Hebrew for gratitude is hoda'ah, which comes from the same language as vidui, which means admission. That gratitude is an admission of what is already good in my life. Happiness, who is the wealthy person, the one who enjoys what he has because he's keeping inventory. Happiness is not keeping, keeping inventory of what I don't yet have. That's unhappiness. Happiness is in keeping inventory of what I already have. And the media wants me to believe that happiness is not what I've already got. It's what I don't yet have that will make me happy. Another area that really sabotages my happiness is the educational system by default sells to me that the straight A student is the candidate for success in life. And yet ask the straight A student, what really counts in life? Ask ourselves, what really counts in life? Is it 
How many PhDs? How many letters at the end of my name? Which position I hold in the corporate world? How much money I make? My commissions? The job I hold? Which universities I graduated from? The shape of my body? Or is it really almost, almost none of that? It's rather how I treat myself and others. The emotional IQ in Hebrew, midot, the real measures of a human being. Sensitivity, love, generosity. How much would respect score on a 0 to 10 scale? How much would appreciation, gratitude to a spouse, to a child score on a 0 to 10 scale? How much does love, how much does empathy, listening, how much does loyalty score? We know they all break the scale. Because emotional IQ, the midot, the real measures of a human being, is how I treat myself and other people. In marriage, raising kids, and even in the workplace, it's really the emotional IQ that counts the most. I will close that the most powerful tool to use in increasing happiness in our, in our lives is our nothing more complex than our very face. The smile on our face actually says the statement, I'm happy. And when I count and keep inventory on a daily basis. The blessings God makes me say, a hundred blessings a day, not to tickle God, but rather for me to admit daily the hundreds of blessings that I receive. And so I'm training in gratitude because happiness is gratitude. Gratitude is happiness. This is Jonathan Rietti wishing you health, wealth, wisdom, and happiness. Got feedback for Gavrielle? Send an email to gavrielleradio at gmail.com. That's G-A-V-R-I-E-L radio at gmail.com. So I'm calling this segment, Let's Get Some Facts Straight. With all the sloganeering going on during the Gaza war to swing public opinion and political decisions in favor of the Palestinian cause, we need to look at some glaring historical realities in this conflict. I found an article written by David Harris. It was published in Global Voice. That's an online informational bulletin for the AJC, the American Jewish Committee. This is, in my opinion, a liberal-leaning organization. The article is called 10 Basic Facts About the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. It was written six years ago, but the facts still stand solidly today. Now, this is important to know, as Israel's been dragged in front of a kangaroo court in The Hague this week over charges of genocide in Gaza. Will anyone talk about the commitment to genocide against Israel that was written into the Hamas Charter as a stated objective? I kind of doubt it, but I'm digressing. For now, I'd just like you to absorb these 10 facts. And if you'd like a link to them, you can send me an email at gavrielradio, G-A-V-R-I-E-L, radio, at gmail.com. So here's how David Harris develops his 10 points. In all the discussion about this decades-long conflict and the quest for a solution, some basic facts are too often missing, neglected, downplayed, or skewed. Not only does this do a disservice to history, it also contributes to prolonging the conflict by perpetuating false assumptions and mistaken notions. Here's fact number one. There could have been a two-state solution as early as 1947. That's precisely what the UN Special Committee on Palestine proposed, recognizing the presence of two people and two nationalisms in a territory governed temporarily by the United Kingdom. And the UN General Assembly decisively endorsed that proposal. The Jewish side pragmatically accepted the plan, but the Arab world categorically rejected it, because they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. That's my statement here. Fact number two. 
When Israel declared independence on May the 14th of 1948, it extended the hand of friendship to its Arab neighbors, as clearly evidenced by the founding documents and statements, especially by David Ben-Gurion. That offer, too, was spurned. Instead, five Arab armies declared war on the fledgling Jewish state, seeking its total destruction. Despite vastly outnumbering the Jews and possessing superior military arsenals, which the British left to them, my statement again, they failed in their quest. Fact number three. Until 1967, the eastern part of Jerusalem and the entire West Bank were in the hands of Jordan, not Israel. Had the Arab world wished an independent Palestinian state with its capital in Jerusalem could have been established at any time. Not only did this not happen, but there's no record of it ever having been discussed. To the contrary, Jordan annexed the territory seeking full and permanent control. It proceeded to treat Jerusalem as a backwater while denying Jews any access to Jewish holy sites in the old city, and they destroyed the synagogues there. Meanwhile, Gaza was under, who? Egyptian military rule. Again, no talk of sovereignty for the Palestinians there either. Fact number four. In May of 1967, the Egyptian and Syrian governments repeatedly threatened to annihilate Israel, as these countries demanded that UN peacekeeping forces be withdrawn from the region. Israeli shipping lanes to the southern port of Elat were blocked, and Arab troops were deployed to frontline positions. The Six-Day War was the outcome, a war that Israel won. Coming into possession of the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, Sinai Peninsula, the West Bank, and eastern Jerusalem, Israel extended feelers to its Arab neighbors via third parties seeking a land-for-peace formula. The Arab response came back on September the 1st, 1967, from Khartoum in Sudan, where the Arab League nations were meeting. And the message was unmistakable. No peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, and no negotiations with Israel. Yet another opportunity to end the conflict had come and gone. Fact number five. In November 1977, which, again, me speaking, I remember because I was in Israel at the time, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat broke with the Arab rejectionist consensus. He traveled to the Israeli capital of Jerusalem to meet with Israeli leaders and address Israel's parliament and speak of peace. Two years later, underscoring the lengths to which Israel was prepared to end the conflict, a deal was reached in which Israel, led notably by a right-wing government, yielded the vast Sinai Peninsula with its strategic depth, its oil deposits, its settlements, and air bases, in exchange for the promise of a new era in relations with the Arab world's leading country. And then in 1981, Sadat was slain by the Muslim Brotherhood for his alleged perfidy. But his legacy of peace with Israel, thankfully, though sometimes shaky, my comment, has endured. Fact number six. In September 1993, Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, reached an agreement known as the Oslo Accords, offering hope for peace on that front as well. But eight months later, PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat confirmed the suspicions of many that he was not honest when he was caught on tape in a Johannesburg mosque, asserting that this agreement was nothing more than a temporary truce until final victory. Again, me speaking here, we're going to talk in depth about this in another episode. Fact 7. In 1994, Jordan's King Hussein, following the footsteps of Egyptian President Sadat, reached an agreement with Israel, again demonstrating Israel's readiness for peace and willingness to make territorial sacrifices when sincere leaders come forward. Fact number 8. In 2000 and 2001, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, leading a left-of-center government and supported by the Clinton administration, offered a groundbreaking two-state arrangement to Arafat, including a bold compromise on Jerusalem. Not only did the Palestinian leader reject the offer, but he shockingly told Clinton that Jews had never had any historical connection to Jerusalem. He gave no counteroffer, and he triggered a new wave of Palestinian violence that led to more than a 1,000 Israeli fatalities. That's proportionally equivalent to 40,000 Americans. By the way, I just have to say this here, uh, as Gabriel speaking. To the east of the old city is a mount called the Mount of Olives, Harizitim. There are over 100,000 
Jewish graves on that mount, many of them going back 3,000 years. So when you hear this statement that Jews have no historical claim to the land, who's buried there? All right, let's keep back to the uh, last two facts here. Fact number nine. In 2008, three years after Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon unilaterally withdrew all Israeli soldiers and settlers from Gaza, only to see Hamas seize control and destroy another chance for coexistence, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert went even further than Barak in extending an olive branch to the Palestinian Authority. He offered a still more generous two-state proposal, but he got no formal response from Mahmoud Abbas, who is Arafat's successor. A Palestinian negotiator subsequently acknowledged in the media that the Israeli plan would have given his side the equivalent of 100 percent of the disputed lands under discussion. By the way, this is me talking again. I'm sorry. Why wouldn't they take that deal? Fact number 10. At the request of the Obama administration, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu agreed to a 10-month freeze on settlement building in 2010 as a good faith gesture to lure the Palestinians back to the table. Regrettably, it failed. The Palestinians didn't show up. Instead, they have continued to this day their strategy of incitement, attempts to bypass Israel and face-to-face talks by going to international organizations instead propounding denial of the age-old Jewish link to Jerusalem and, by extension, the whole region, and providing a lifetime of financial support for captured terrorists and the families of suicide bombers. So David Harris says, isn't it high time to draw some obvious conclusions from these facts? Recognize the many lost opportunities to reach a settlement because of a consistent no from one side, and a call on the Palestinians to start saying yes for a change? So that's what David Harris wrote for the American Jewish Committee back in 2017, and here's my summary close on this. Why, when Israel has bent like a contortionist time and time again to make a peace agreement with the Palestinians, why have these truculent, contumacious Arab leaders refused it, even when they were offered 100% of the West Bank and Gaza? Why? Because a two-state solution is not what they want. They don't want peace with Israel. They want every piece of Israel. That's what From the River to the Sea is all about. Though I doubt how many historically illiterate college students chanting that phrase could tell you the name of the river or the name of the sea. So I might not agree with the liberal aspirations of David Harris and the American Jewish Committee, who advocate a Rodney King hope of, can't we all get along? But I certainly agree with the facts as uh, they were stated. So what's the call to action? Simple. Get informed. Read up. Stand up. Speak up. None of us expected to see the explosion of anti-Semitism that we do today. It's flowing across the media like so many, I don't know, broken sewer lines. But it's here. Some very big money is bankrolling some very big lies about the Jewish presence in our historical homeland and about Jews in America and around the world. Thank God we have friends outside our own community and we're grateful for them. And we also have enemies within our own community. and We do well to call them out. We're in one of those wake-up call moments in history, so what can we do? Well, there's a lot. I'll just mention two practical things. To Jews in the diaspora, I say, move. It's time. Come here to Israel. One benefit of the COVID era is that we learned how much we can do by remote, online. And if you're in high tech, there's plenty of opportunity for you here. But a lot of people have come here with hardly a suitcase and have reinvented themselves. No, It's not easy, but it's our home. And there's help, like through the organization Nefesh Benefesh. Get in touch. Open a file. At least do that much. And if you're a college student, go to ipledgeforisrael.org and take the pledge that if you study abroad, you'll make Israel your number one choice. 
By the way, we mentioned last week that the Hebrew University offers a three-year BA program for about 15000 a year, and that's before scholarships. Imagine how good your Hebrew and your Jewish literacy will be after three years here. Or at the bare minimum, take the five-month option and come for a semester abroad. There's a lot more to explore on this multi-layered subject, but the clock says we're winding it down. What do you think about all this? I welcome your emails to me at gavrielradio at gmail.com. And as we close out this broadcast of the Gabriel Sanders Show, I want to say thanks again to executive producer Zeb Brenner and a shout-out to Erin Michelle for her voiceover artistry and special thanks to Jason Shaw of Audionautics for our theme music. Bye for now. This program showcases people, organizations, and opportunities for making a difference. Tune in next week for another freshly baked edition of the Gabrielle Sanders Show. You can reach Gabrielle at gabrielleradio at gmail.com. That's G-A-V-R-I-E-L radio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.